leaving a job, getting fired from a job, having to have that surgery on my vocal cords, anything, all those those little moments of having to kind of overcome something, I can do more than I think I can if I can just kind of shut that thing out of my brain that says no. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast, featuring personal stories of career change to inspire you to reinvent your own career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to make brave changes in your career that allow you to do work you find more meaningful and enjoyable. In each episode, I feature people who have boldly stepped off the beaten path to relaunch their careers. We talk through their unique personal journeys, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to share her story of going from a Broadway performer to a web engineer. We'll discuss how to manage the pursuit of multiple professional paths and when to give things one more chance before completely closing a chapter in your career. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll share how I manage and accept the messiness of career transitions. I once heard somewhere that your happiness is equal to what you experience minus your original expectations. I want you to think for a moment about the original blueprint you once had for your career. What did you want to be when you grew up? I'm guessing if you're like me, your actual career trajectory has been very different from what you imagined and how you expected things would transpire, and your ability to roll with the punches and absorb the shocks that inevitably come up along the way of any professional journey can make a huge difference to where you ultimately end up. My guest today is Carla Stickler, who's gone through some serious twists and turns in her career. She's currently a web engineer at Spotify, but prior to this work, she spent over a decade performing in musicals. She's best known for her performance as Elphaba in Wicked on Broadway, and has performed her own cabaret as a guest entertainer on board Norwegian and Disney Cruise Lines. With a BFA in acting from NYU Tisch and master's degree in theater education from NYU Steinhardt, she was a voice teacher in New York City and made appearances as a teaching artist and guest speaker at thespian festivals around the country. Although she now works for a streaming music company, Carla's remained passionate about reframing the narrative of the starving artist and encourages young artists to take agency over their careers by developing skills that can provide them with financial stability along their artistic journey. Now, I really enjoyed hearing Carla's story because she gets into a very common tension that exists between what you want to do, that's a bit unknown, and what you have always done before, that is very well known. And when to cut the cord and start a new chapter in your career. You can get all the show notes from today's conversation at careerrelaunch.net slash 99. Carla spoke with me from Chicago. Well, welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast, Carla. It is great to have you on the show, and I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thanks so much for having me. I can't wait to get into it. <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk about, first of all, what has been keeping you busy at this moment in your career and also your life? Well, at this very moment, the thing that is keeping me the busiest is I recently started a new job almost, oh, I think I'm like a month and a half in now at Spotify. And so that is what has been keeping me the most busy right now. Just trying to like learn everything and figure out the code base and figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> and you are a web engineer there. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And without getting into specifics on the projects you're working on, can you give me a sense of exactly what a web engineer does at Spotify? Like most people know they have the app on their phone. That would be 
our mobile engineers work on the app that you probably use daily. I work on the website of the podcast side of things. So I work on web being what you see on your computer when you're using the podcast part of Spotify. And I work on front end. So I work on what you see, not the back end, not the data, not all the stuff that makes everything run. Very interesting. Well, that front end user experience is obviously really important to the success of Spotify over the years. And as a user myself, I certainly appreciate the incremental improvements and changes to the app made over time. What about personally? What's been occupying your time outside of work? I actually really love and that Spotify has a really great respect for uh, work-life balance. So I do actually have a lot of, I really take advantage of my personal time. Um, you know, I think the one thing that has been occupying all of my time, and I'm going to dive right in, we're going to get real personal. My husband and I have been doing fertility treatments now for almost two years, and we are coming to a close with them very soon. And that has just been kind of occupying all of the other space in my life. I can imagine that's it's one of those things that I think many people don't talk about. But then if you start to ask around with friends, you start to realize a lot of people are actually dealing with this when you had no idea that they were dealing with it on top of everything else they have going on. And I know it can be yeah. a very intensive process. Okay. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about your former life. You haven't always been a web engineer at Spotify, and I'm going to want to talk with you at some point about how you ended up in this very different industry from what you were doing before, which is you used to be a performer on Broadway. And before we get into the details of the shows that you were in, can you just take me back to your childhood and how you came to this idea that you actually wanted to perform? So I actually grew up in a very musical family. My mother was a classical pianist who was obsessed with Stephen Sondheim and musical theater. My grandmother was an opera singer who had a voice studio downtown at the Fine Arts Building here in Chicago. My father was in a, uh, like a, oh, there were five of them. They were called Stuck in the 50s and they sang doo-wop in my hometown. Oh, wow. Okay. So I just kind of grew up in it. Like, just everybody in my family was in music. So it made sense that that was kind of what I was going to do. I was I was in choir at a really young age. I was really encouraged to pursue the things that I wanted to do artistically. And I went to summer camp up at Interlochen Arts Camp up in Northern Michigan in Traverse City. For all my summers of high school, I ended up going there for my senior year of high school. So it was kind of this thing where I was just on this path. There was a lot of momentum around doing theater and music just nonstop. Like I didn't really have a lot of other things that I did. I was very focused on music here. And were you thinking that you were eventually going to do this professionally at the time? Was that the plan? I went back and forth when I was younger. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do musical theater or if I wanted to be an opera singer. I actually ended up going to college, my freshman year of college, at Cincinnati Conservatory of Music to study opera. I was like, I want to be just like my grandma. I want to sing opera. And that was kind of the plan. And um, my freshman year, I ended up having a little bit of a setback. I had to have surgery on my vocal cords after finding out I had a vocal cyst. And I dropped out of school after a year. I went home to Chicago. I worked in a deli for a semester and was just kind of stuck trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And at that point, I decided to do just acting. So I went to NYU and I studied just theater. Um, and I didn't sing for three years. 
At one point I had a teacher who was like, why are you singing? And I was a very emotional child. So I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing in my life. I think I want to be an actor. I'm very confused. And they taught me how to belt and I learned how to kind of just reimagine what my voice could be. And that for me was, I would say kind of the first time in my life I learned how to kind of pivot and how to re reframe what I wanted to do and realize that I could kind of have a little more power over who I am. So I learned how to belt and things just kind of took off. Like that was, I was like, oh, this works. This makes sense. I'm good at this. And then I just kind of fell into it. Then after graduation, I got an agent and I started working immediately. Yeah, one of the things I've always wondered about, Carla, is how does one know whether they're pretty good at singing and maybe above average versus being like top tier Broadway material? Like, At what point does that become more obvious to you? You feel it. You feel the response that you're getting from other people. You feel the way that you feel while you're doing it. You know, I once I learned how to belt, which is the thing that I did in my Broadway career. I am a Broadway belter. Once I learned how to do that, I just remember it feeling so weird, but it just felt really good. Like it felt right. And I was getting really positive responses from my teachers and things just kind of started snowballing and falling into place. I don't think we always get to make the decision, but I was getting like all this really good feedback. So I was like, oh yes, I'm gonna follow this. And that's kind of what I tend to do. I like, I choose something and if I'm getting positive responses, I tend to follow that path until I don't, I either decide I don't wanna do it anymore <laughs> or, you know, I decide I wanna do something else. So you get an agent. What was one of the first roles you ended up landing? So the first big job that I booked right out of college, I ended up playing Liesl in The Sound of Music on the oh, Asia tour. So okay. I, I was like 19 or no, I was 20. When how old was when I graduated? 22. I was 22. And I went to Hong Kong for like four months and played Liesl, the oldest daughter, the 16 going on 17. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And it was so much fun. I just like had the best time. We were like famous in Hong Kong. Our pictures were on billboards and everywhere we went, everyone knew who we were. It was very, very fun. And how long were you doing that for before you ended up moving on to your next role? That was like a four or five month gig. And when it ended, I actually didn't work for a year after that. I had a really big kind of reality check. I had been really fortunate to book that, but I still wasn't a union actor because it wasn't, it was overseas. So it wasn't a union gig. And I was really struggling to be seen. Even though I had an agent, it was really hard for me to get in the door. And so the only thing that I knew how to do was take class so I could meet people. So I took a bunch of musical theater classes. I started taking dance classes all the time. I started waiting in long lines to audition for stuff because I wasn't union. I would Every time I would get an audition for my agent, I would you know, get a coach and I would work really hard on it because my goal was just to get my union card so that I could audition easier. <laughs> I didn't study musical theater in college. So that year was really my education into musical theater that I really kind of crammed myself while waiting a lot of tables and bartending and <laughs> doing a lot of other things to make money so I could live in New York. I've always wondered, because you always hear these stories about people who eventually end up on Broadway or who are on Broadway and they're waiting tables or they're doing these other sort of blue collar jobs. Did you have like a time limit in mind for yourself before you would 
maybe move on to something else? Because I would imagine it takes a little bit of time to gain some traction in this very competitive industry. Really funny that you asked that because I haven't thought about this in a while, but right at the end of that year, I was two seconds away from quitting. I was so over it. I hated waiting tables. Nothing was happening. I remember the guy that I was dating with at that time. We had taken a trip to California and we were out at the beach. We're like, maybe we should just move to the beach and wait tables or like open our own theater company. I don't know. We were about to just like leave New York. I was just so fed up with that whole year. It had been really frustrating and hard. And while literally while we were on that trip, my agents called and they were like, can you be in New York in two days? You have a final callback for Mamma Mia for the national tour. And I was like, okay. And I had been in for the show a few times at that point. And so I flew back. I got a terrible cold. I had probably what I thought was one of the worst auditions of my life. And then two days later, I found out I booked it and I had to go out on tour a week later. When you were kind of like, how do you know you're doing well? I always take it as like little signs like that. I'm like, well, I guess I am supposed to do this. So my plans of quitting kind of got put on hold. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna go on tour. See, the universe has spoken. I'm supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to quit. So I just kind of kept doing that. So I went on tour then for about a year and a half with Mamma Mia. So you're in Mamma Mia, huge show, very well known around the world. You would eventually end up getting cast in the Wicked musical. How did that all transpire for you? I've literally done three large shows in the entirety of my career because I was really fortunate that I got into kind of these long running shows. I did Mamma Mia for about a year and a half, and then I left to go get married the first time. And I was a vacation cover for that company then for the rest of that year and a half. I would fly out to the tour and I would cover for a couple months. And then in that time, um, at the beginning of 2010, I ended up booking Wicked. And so then I went on tour with that for three years and then back to New York. And then I was in New York for the rest of the time. (laughs) So (laughs) just going through this one step at a time, what was your role during those first years with Wicked? So from 2010 through 2011, I was the understudy for Alphaba, which means I was in the ensemble eight shows a week and I was the second cover. So in Wicked, Alphaba has a standby and an understudy. Um, The standby is an offstage cover. They're the first person to go on. They're on a principal contract. They will always perform the role of Alphaba if the lead role cannot go on, the lead person who plays that role. The understudy only goes on if the other two people cannot go on. So you're in the ensemble eight shows a week, you're understood, you've rehearsed the role and you have no idea when you're gonna go on for the role. So I did that for two years. And then I did the standby role for a year on the tour. And then after I left that, I moved into the Broadway company to go back into the understudy role. So I was the understudy for the entirety of the time that I was there on Broadway. I would occasionally go in as like a swing contract because I would cover a bunch of other things, but I was always understudying Alphaba. Alphaba, for those people who are not familiar with the show, I have seen the show, but it lead role and mm-hmm. is she's the, the green witch. She is the green witch <laughs> <laughs> and lead role in a huge, huge musical. As the understudy, what are you doing during the show because you're saying you're you're on standby are you literally waiting backstage so it would depend right if i was the standby i would be off stage and i would just be kind of hanging out 
when I was on tour and I was the standby, I had an Etsy store and I made bracelets backstage because I had nothing else to do. <laughs> but I also, I was really, I guess, fortunate um, in that I performed the role a lot while I was on tour. We just happened to be in places where some of the girls that I covered maybe had allergies or whatever was happening with them. So I got to perform the role a lot while I was on tour. As an understudy, though, you're in the show eight shows a week. So you're in the ensemble. So there's no time to do anything else. That standby role is my favorite thing to do ever. It's like the perfect role. Maybe you play Alpha Bow once or twice a week, and then you just get to kind of do whatever you want the rest of the week. You have to be at the theater. Yeah, that's the coveted gig. In my opinion, that is the perfect job. Could you give us a sense of how much of this you were doing each week? You said you've got, obviously you've got multiple shows a week. How many shows are we talking about every single week? Eight shows a week. I'm assuming if you're playing the role of Alpha, but you're in heels, you're wearing a wig, you're in full dress. Does that take its toll on you after a while? I'm just trying to imagine delivering that level of energy every single yeah. night, whether you're in the ensemble or if you're actually performing the role of Alphaba, both just require like 100% every night. Yeah. What's that like? I found actually my ensemble role to be really hard on my body because I danced a lot and I am not actually a dancer. But for some reason, you know, the understudy has to dance. So I wore like three inch heels and heavy, heavy wigs. I My neck, chronic neck issues from wearing those heavy wigs. Um, in the Broadway company, the stage that we danced on is not flat. It's what you call a raked stage. So it's basically lower in the front of the stage and higher. It goes on a slight angle. And our stage is one of the highest raked, I believe, on Broadway, the one in the one at the Gershwin in New York. And that rake, so imagine you're wearing a three-inch heel on a raked stage. Now it's like you're wearing a five-inch heel. And you're wearing a heavy, I used to wear this very tall, flat top wig. And so my head, you're constantly, your body is rebalancing for like this crazy angle. So you're your neck and all these muscles that you wouldn't think are like overcompensating. And so I ended up with like neck injuries and I ended up with some rib injuries from my dance, from dancing with a dance partner and a very bony shoulder that got me in the side of the rib. And then a bunch of foot injuries. (laughs) I have hip injury. Like I, I literally spent all of my free time when I was in that show in New York at physical therapy, the doctor, the gym, just like trying to make sure that my body was ready to go that night because I had so many things going on. It was, that's actually the most exhausting part of being on a Broadway, in a Broadway show. I was going to actually ask you, yeah, like what's the best part of being in a big Broadway hit and what's the toughest part of it? Yeah, that's the toughest part. The, the, physical, the fact that the physicality. Yeah, and it's the thing that the audience doesn't see. They don't know. There's this idea that, that performing on Broadway is really glamorous and yeah. It is. There's that certain aspect to it that's really fun. You know, the fact that I get to go out on stage and tell the story every night and sing sing these songs and be a part of this really incredible show, that's the best part of it. You know, when I get to meet people and they tell me how much the show meant to them, that is really incredible. But the stuff that people do not see, you know, the constantly having to take care of your body and your voice. When I, as an understudy, I... I always like to say it was like I had a little alphabet sitting on my shoulder at all times. So I had no social life. I couldn't go out late. I had to make sure I got at least eight to nine hours of sleep every night. I couldn't drink alcohol. I couldn't talk too much. I had to make sure that I was warmed up every single day because I also never knew when I was going to perform that role. And I would find out at a at the last minute always because I was the understudy and not the standby. It 
usually meant that there was an emergency if I was going to be performing. And, you know, I performed a lot, which meant there were a lot of emergencies, which meant I couldn't really live my life because I had no idea when those things were going to happen. And so I kind of always had to be ready. That's why I say like that standby role is that coveted role because you know you're going to get to do it at some point within the next couple of weeks. But as the understudy, you know, it could be six months. It could be a year before I go on. And so it's a lot of just having to keep up your physical body and everything so you can do that role at a moment's notice. Yeah, I just imagine the uncertainty of it and just not knowing what your day is going to look like or thinking you might go on stage and then you don't. It's emotionally exhausting. Yeah, I could imagine. At what point did you feel like this toll that the performance was having, both physical and also just the emotional, what you're talking about, not knowing when you're going to perform? At what point did you feel like you may need to make a change? Do you remember what that moment was for you? The first one in 2015, when I left the Broadway company full-time, I knew that I couldn't keep doing the show eight times a week. I was just exhausted. I had a lot of medical stuff going on. And so I actually went to grad school. I decided for myself that if I was going to step away from performing full-time, the respectable thing to do would be to go and get a master's degree in education. Um, I got a master's in theater education at NYU and teach theater because I really like teaching theater. I like teaching voice, something I always felt very drawn to. I really like helping people. And so you were teaching high school kids at at that time, right? I was doing both. So I was going to thespian festivals in the summer and I was teaching, working with high school students. And so that's kind of what inspired me, but I knew I wanted to work with college students. Um, I wanted to kind of work on like a little bit more of like a expertise level. Like, so I taught During between 2015 and the pandemic, so 2020, I taught on two faculties in New York. I had a private voice studio that I ran and I loved doing that, but I also simultaneously was still going in and out of Wicked during that time. And so I think I thought teaching was gonna give me this freedom to have a little more ownership over my career, teach, but then I was also still performing occasionally and I was getting really frustrated with the business throughout all of that. And it wasn't quite what I think I thought it was going to be. I was an adjunct professor. I didn't make a lot of money. I didn't have health insurance. And I just kind of kept realizing that I didn't know. I was like, I don't know if I can do this forever. I was exhausted. I felt like I was just constantly hustling, looking into the show, performing for a couple weeks here and there, and then maybe doing readings of new musicals and then having a full load of students and just being absolutely drained. And so then I think in 2018, I had been at Wicked for a couple weeks. And the the thing about going into Wicked is every time we would go back, they would kind of like dangle a carrot in front of me. They'd be like, oh, Carla, it's so great to have you back. We really have to get you back in that standby role. And then the role would come up and they wouldn't cast me in it. And I just kind of was like, I keep bending over backwards to come in and help you out. Like they would call me a Sunday morning and be like, can you come in for the matinee? Oh, wow. Okay, that afternoon. Okay. Yeah, like I I remember one 4th of July, I was in Philadelphia with my friends and they were like, hey, Carla, do you think you can be here tomorrow? We need somebody to cover for two weeks. And I was like, great. And so I rented a car and drove back from like wherever I was in Pennsylvania to like help them for two weeks. And I did a lot of things like that. And I think I thought if I gave them, if I showed that I was loyal to the show, 
they would give me the thing that I wanted, which was to move me into that standby role, because that was that was the thing that I loved, because I really loved performing that role. I didn't love dancing. And so in 2018, I had this moment where I realized, oh, they're never going to give me that role. They're never going to let me play it. And I kind of just melted. I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't teach these college students to go into a business that is just going to chew them up and spit them out. (laughs) I can't keep doing, like, I was like, I don't know how to inspire these people to go into this business that is making me feel so terrible. So I was like, I need to do something else. (laughs) Now, before we get to that transition, I also know that on top of all of this, do I have this right that between 2015 and 2017, you were also working on a cruise line? Is that Oh yeah, is I was also right? doing that. <laughs> okay, on top of <laughs> yeah. going to grad school. Can you just explain how that worked? How that's possible? How was <laughs> yeah. I doing 40 million things at once? Yes. You know, I mentioned I have ADHD. That's how I was doing it. No, I was finishing grad school and I was working on Norwegian cruise lines, doing my own show. I was a guest entertainer. And the cruise went from Sunday to Sunday, from New York to the Bahamas and back. I would, on Monday in New York, I would go to classes on Monday and Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, I would fly to the Bahamas, meet the ship there, cruise back with them to New York, do my like two sets (laughs) Saturday night. And then I would get off the ship Sunday morning and I would go home and I would rinse and repeat. I did that nonstop for like every week for about six months. And then for another year and a half, I did about one sailing a month like every week, uh, maybe once a month, maybe twice a month, I switched off with another girl. So I did that kind of intermittently. So you're balancing this solo show on Norwegian cruise lines with your grad school while also being called in every so often to do Wicked. You're flying back and forth between New York and the Bahamas. When you did decide that it was time for you to look at doing something else, What steps did you take to figure that out? I'm like, ooh, shiny things. I'm like that kind of person. I see something that like grabs my attention and I will run towards it. And 2018, a friend of mine came to my birthday party and he had been a songwriter. That's how I'd known him. And he had gone to a software engineering boot camp and was like, I just got a job as a software engineer. And I think it was just like the perfect timing. The second he said it, I don't know why I thought this, but I was like, oh, I bet I can do that. And I went home and I just started teaching myself how to code. And I was totally sucked in. I would spend hours and hours just on my couch, on my computer, learning HTML and CSS and JavaScript. And I was like, this is so interesting and so different than anything I had ever done. How were you teaching yourself this? Was it online courses? Did you get books? The program that I used was freecodecamp.org. I'm a big fan of their stuff. I think it's really accessible. They have a lot of a lot of front end. They do also do some back end. I think they have like Python and yeah, I don't know. I, I use them mostly for JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. But um, and then I was also digging around a bunch of bootcamp prep programs. So my friend had gone to the Flatiron School. So I was looking at their bootcamp prep. I also looked at um, Grace Hopper's bootcamp prep. I need a lot of different pathways into material to understand it. So I just found a bunch of different ways to get into this material so I could see it from a bunch of different angles and and understand the concepts. So I did that and then I decided to do the bootcamp in the summer of 2019, my summer break. 
So I'm just trying to understand, you're going from being a performer, belting in front of huge audiences, which strikes me as quite an extroverted type of activity. And then you're moving into learning coding by yourself, sitting in front of a screen. They seem like such different worlds and existences to me. Was that difficult to make the transition or was it welcome? You know, it's really interesting. While performing is a really extroverted activity, I guess, uh, or job career, understudying a role is a very solo job. I spent a lot of solo time going over the role. Like I would spend time by myself in a rehearsal room, walking through the show, you know, by myself in my hotel room, singing through the show and, and visualizing my work. So there is a lot of introverted kind of solo work that goes into being an understudy. Yes, you do have to be on stage with other people. So you do have to know how to connect with other people. The thing that I knew how to do was how to work by myself. I knew how to learn things. I had learned how I learn. And that is something I do solo. And so doing software engineering really kind of tapped into that solo work that I love. I also, I am a ceramic artist, so I do pottery and pottery is also very focused solo work. I can sit at a pottery wheel for four hours, five hours, and just throw mugs all day long. You know, I, I love very focused work. And so software engineering really tapped into that for me. I guess I miss, I do, I do sometimes like crave people, but um, I've found other ways to get that. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're spending a lot of time by yourself in hotel rooms and backstage and just quietly rehearsing things with yourself. So very interesting. Can you explain how you then transitioned into your first formalized role in this world of coding and software engineering? And I understand your first role that you had wasn't exactly the perfect role for you, but it helped you transition into the industry. I had the great fortune of starting my job search in March of 2020. We all know what was going on then. And everybody was on a hiring freeze. Nobody would hire me. Nobody would even interview me for software engineering roles. I had a couple calls with people. And what I remember one at the end of the call, she said to me, I'm really sorry. I hope I didn't waste your time. I just really wanted to talk to you. You seemed like an interesting person, but I don't really have a role for you. <laughs> and I was like, okay. She's like, but I'm so interested in you. I, I can't wait to see what's next for you. Please keep in touch. And I was like, great. Okay. <laughs> and you know, I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm networking. I guess that's what I'm doing. And I could not find any roles. And so I ended up, the first interview that I got was for a customer success role at a tech startup in New York. It was fully remote. I charmed my way into the role. I had no idea what I was doing. I bombed the interview. I sent them an email being like, listen, I can learn this. I'm really good with people. If you teach me how to do it, I will be able to do it. And they gave me their job. I did it for a year. It was not the right role for me. I discovered I like people. I do not like working with customers. That is a very different kind of people. The great thing about it was it gave me and my husband the opportunity to move back to Chicago. So I had a full-time job. I had health insurance. You know, those were the most important things to me. So as soon as we had some stability, we moved back to Chicago. We bought a house. We got to be near our family. And then once we settled here, I started applying for software engineering jobs and ended up at a company in Chicago. Um, and I did that for two years. And it was great. That was G2, which is, yes. they do software and service reviews. Correct. Now, before yeah. we get to your current role, 
I know in late 2021, you actually ended up kind of going back to your former life a little bit. Can you explain to me what happened after you had started your role as a software engineer at G2 about a year into your role? I am so grateful to G2. They were so supportive um, when this happened. I kind of mentioned earlier how Wicked would ask me to do things very last minute a lot. That was kind of the thing I'm very good at. I'm very good at a last minute pop in to do something that is very difficult. And it was Christmas vacation of 2021. It was the day after Christmas. I was on my way to Michigan to go like have a great time at a cabin with a bunch of friends. And I get a call from Wicked. Um, and they were like, hey, what are you doing? Do you want to fly to New York tomorrow and come help us out? We, we're running out of alphabets. Everybody has COVID. And at that point, like really, I was thinking through all the girls that I knew in New York who covered the role in the past few years and everybody had COVID or had like just had a baby. And so I was like, well, it's me. Okay. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go just because I was so excited about my new life. And I was like, no, I think I got to do this. I think I need to kind of just for me, like for myself, I was like, if I get a, one more chance to play this role, I think I can kind of put it to bed. I think I will be content with Broadway and not feel like I missed out on anything. Cause I hadn't at that point played Alphaba since 2015, even though I'd been covering it and understudying it and rehearsing it, I hadn't actually performed it in a really long time. So I was like, oh, this might be a really nice opportunity. So I flew in, luckily didn't get COVID and I did get to perform the role two nights while I was there. It was unexpected. I was kind of just doing it for myself. And then the moment kind of went a little viral and I had a lot of people reaching out to me and news organizations and everybody wanted to know who this crazy software engineer was that could just play alphabet at the drop of a dime. <laughs> it was a little bit exhausting. I think I was really ready to kind of just be a software engineer. And then all of a sudden it launched me into this space of a lot of people wanted to talk to me about what I had done and feeling like I needed to be an inspiration to a lot of other people. And, and I really love that. But also, you know, I said, my husband and I had been trying to get pregnant for a long time. So it was like in the middle of all of these things. And I had so much going on. It was overwhelming. <laughs> I think that there are sometimes, Carla, there's this allure to our former life. And it can be very alluring and almost tempting to revert back to what used to be a very normal and kind of our day-to-day -day existence. And yet you've now seen this other side of the world. You've seen this other side of an industry that you maybe thought wasn't quite right for you. And then you discovered this whole coding world. And yeah, I can imagine that would just create all sorts of internal dialogue is what I would probably be having with yeah. myself <laughs> during that time. A lot of like, who am I? What am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Have I made the right choices? The teacher in me is like, how can I help other people? It was overwhelming. A lot of good things came out of it, but I wasn't quite ready for that for all of it. So a lot of opportunities missed just because I, I couldn't keep track of everything. Well, you, you eventually, I guess, would remain in the software and, and web engineering space. And what triggered you to eventually decide to move to Spotify, which is a recent move you just made earlier this year? You know, I loved G2. I was a full stack engineer there. Um, it was a great first job for me. I got to learn so much about who I want to be as an engineer. I always tell people who are kind of getting into engineering, your first job is not going to be your forever role. Your first job is to learn about what 
is going to be required of you in this space, especially if you're changing careers from an entirely different field. Your first job is to learn the lingo, learn, just learn how to exist in this space and learn what your opinions are and figure out who you are as an engineer. And for me, it was great because I, I really discovered at that role that I love front end work. The artist in me loves the design aspect of front end. I love making things look really pretty. <laughs> I re I'm really drawn to that aspect of engineering. Uh, and so when this role kind of came up, a friend of mine works as Spotify and he was like, hey, we have a role, you should apply for it. I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. And then I was like, you know what? I'm never gonna feel ready. I'm just gonna do it. I like spent weeks just cramming so I could do well on the interviews. And it just kind of one thing after another. And I was like, oh, you know what? I am ready. I actually do know more than I thought I did. Like I just spent two years doing this. I know so much more about who I am in this space, what I want. I'm much better at articulating that. I know how to answer these questions. I know what I'm doing. Why not me? Why can't I get this job? And so I, I keep saying it feels very on brand for me to work at Spotify just because it's a music company. Yeah, it and, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm like, of course I would work at Spotify. So it's a really nice, it feels like a really nice landing spot right now. I yeah. I would like to stay for a little while. Yeah, it is an interesting intersection of the work that you're now doing and the work that you had been doing in the past. You're quite neatly yeah. packaged up. <laughs> so the last <laughs> thing I want to talk about with you, Carla, before we wrap up with a very interesting and important initiative of yours that you mentioned to me before is just some of the lessons that you've learned along the way of your very interesting career change journey. And as I was researching you and your story and reading about some of your past interviews that you've done, I know one of the things that you said before was that being an understudy and an actor actually teaches you to be brave. And mm. this change that you have made from being a performer to someone who's now working in the world of software and web engineering takes a bit of a leap of faith. How were you able to find your courage to make that leap of faith? I think the courage has come from all the times that I've had to change my mind or all the times that I've fallen and had to get back up. I think I just discovered through all of that, that the world doesn't end. What's the worst thing that's going to happen as long as, you know, I'm, I'm safe leaving a job, getting fired from a job, having to have that surgery on my vocal cords, anything, all those little moments of having to kind of overcome something and pivot and do something else really reminded me when I was ready, I was like, oh, you know what? I can do this. Why can't I do this? I always used to say, listen, I survived a divorce. I can do anything. Like I survived playing Alphaba on a moment's notice. I flew across the country to go play her. I, my debut was a mess, but I did it. And it was great. Like the first time I played Alphaba, like I have all of these little, little stories of things that I did that I think are crazy things that I was able to do. And so when I look at that, I'm like, well, if I could do that, why can't I do this? And so it's just been like a series of of reminding myself that, well, I can do more than I think I can. If I can just kind of shut that thing out of my brain that says, no, why not instead? You also did an interview with Monica Torres in 2022 for a HuffPost article. And one of the things that really struck me that you said in that article was that you feel like, especially around the arts, people have to commit 100% to being an artist why do you think that people feel this pressure to contain themselves within a very specific career path, even when that could potentially be limiting to their lives? 
I think in particular with the arts, I think it really goes back to the message that we all receive when we're young. It's that, oh, well, theater and music, it's so hard. So you should only do it if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else. That is one of the most toxic things we can tell young people because it really pigeonholes them. So the the kids who do decide to go into the arts then believe that I have to commit, this has to be everything. This I have to give everything in my life to this thing because I made this decision. Whereas everybody else, you know, maybe it scared them to go in. So everybody else just didn't even explore it because they thought there was no room for them to have the arts in their life if they wanted to be like a part-time artist. So you don't really give kids the message that being a part-time artist or being an artist can look however you want. Um, And so we end up creating this idea that it has to be everything. So we have to give it 100%. We have to be willing to put up with toxic behavior in the industry. We have to be willing to put up with low wages and no health insurance because that's what it means to be an artist. That's what it means to be an actor. You know, I don't want to get too much into like the strikes that are going on right now, but the WGA strike and the the SAG strike, you know, it, it's all a reflection of this idea that actors and and artists will will work for nothing because they love it. That's not fair because we will, you know, artists love it and they're passionate about it. So they're willing to give up a lot for it. And that's not really fair to us because then we burn out and we we don't get paid what we're worth and we can't manage all of it because the people with all the money aren't respecting that we also deserve to have livable wages and all of those things. It's hard, you know, like I think there's this feeling of if you can't give it all, can't do it at all, might as well quit. And that's something I'm still exploring. What does it look like? What does art look like in my life now that I've kind of stepped away from that full-time pursuit? How can I do art and not feel burnt out? (laughs) How can I do it for me? How can I do it and still love it and enjoy it? without giving it a hundred percent because I can't do that anymore. You sound like you have a lot of different facets to your professional life and lots of different interests, which is really wonderful. And I'm just interested to hear what you've learned about yourself along the way of this very interesting career change journey. Two things. One, I'm much more resilient than I give myself credit for. But two, I'm smarter than I think. And it sounds silly every time I say it, but I think you know, as a woman, as an artist, these are things that I don't think we tell young girls enough. And so I just always assumed, I don't think I ever thought of myself as a smart person, as like an intellectual person. And so to have gone into engineering, I'm like, oh, I am smart. I can figure things out. I can write code and solve difficult problems that to me means that I'm a smart person. And so it validates that for me, which is really Really nice, you know, to be 40 and finally believe that I'm a smart person. (laughs) Well, speaking of this intersection of your different interests in your career, I'd love to wrap up with something I know is really important to you. Can you tell me a little bit more about artists who code? What exactly is that? At the beginning of 2020, um, when everything shut down, a bunch of friends and a bunch of people that I knew were kind of like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. You learn how to code. How do I do that? And some other friends of mine who I met during this time um, had started a, a Slack group just because they were having the same thing. Their friends were asking them the same question because they had been performers. They had quit performing. And people were like, how do I do that? I need a job. Can I learn to code? Is that something I can do? And they started a little Slack group. And so a friend of mine connected me with them and I just started funneling everybody into this group. And so over the past few years, this group has 
explode. We have hundreds of people in the group and we they're all artists who've all decided they want to learn how to code or learn design or, you know, get into tech somehow. And so we spend a lot of time helping people explore boot camps and have conversations around is there a way to balance both? How can I be in tech and be an artist or a musician? It's a really beautiful group. I love being a part of it. I do a lot of onboarding, so I introduce people to the group and I talk to them and I help them with like their LinkedIn profiles and their resumes and stuff. And it's a really nice space to kind of encourage artists, you know, to remind them also that they're smart, you know, that we are all capable of doing more than I think we all think that we can do. It's a really cool group. I'm very proud to be a part of it. That sounds like a wonderful initiative. And I know you have your hands full with a lot of different things right now. So just wanted to thank you again for telling us more about your former life as a Broadway musical performer, your transition into the software engineering world, and also the lessons you've learned along the way of your very interesting career change journey. So best of luck with your role there at Spotify, the mentorship work you're doing, and also everything else you have going on personally right now. Thank you so much for having me. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Carla's perspectives on how to figure out if you've made the right career choices, when to move on to something new, and why, instead of saying why me, you should be saying why not me. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to talk about how I try to embrace and manage the inevitable messiness of most career pivots. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to thank Harmony for supporting this episode of the Career Relaunch Podcast. The Harmony Standing Desk offers a smarter, healthier way to work with its simple design that fits into any workspace. I'm literally using it right now as I'm recording this. And Career Relaunch listeners can get 15% off any Harmony order by going to careerrelaunch.net slash Harmony, spelled H-A-R-M-O-N-I, and using discount code RELAUNCH. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I want to go back to a bit of a theme that emerged throughout Carla's story today, which was just figuring things out in spite of any unexpected twists and turns in your career. She mentioned having surgery on her vocal cords early on, figuring out while working in a deli what to do next, eventually getting a lead role in Wicked, then balancing grad school with singing on a cruise line while still performing in Wicked. And now she's a web engineer at Spotify, one of the world's largest music streaming service providers. And all this got me thinking about how many transitions in your career, both big and small, tend to be messy. They often require you to make the most of what tends to be an imperfect, suboptimal set of circumstances. Sometimes, even when you're feeling like you've got your whole career mapped out or you're gaining momentum in the areas you want to, some unexpected bump in the road comes out of nowhere and then all your plans suddenly go out the window. Carla mentioned that the show she was working on got canceled in early 2020 at the start of the pandemic. And just to share a personal example of what happened to me and my career around that time, within the span of one week in March 2020, I witnessed all my speaking engagements throughout Europe immediately getting canceled pretty much in one fell swoop. At the time, 
the vast majority of my business income came from in-person speaking engagements and workshops. So although this wasn't on the scale of a big Broadway musical getting canceled, when all my paid work vanished right before my eyes, and with our two-year-old daughter's nursery shutting down at the exact same time, I was definitely concerned. After feeling rather panicked for a solid couple days, I pretty quickly sprang into action and tried to figure out some way for me to instead offer virtual workshops to these same clients who canceled all my other talks indefinitely. And while webinars may seem pretty common now, at the time, doing a webinar instead of an in-person workshop was a bit of a leap at least for my clients, mostly business schools, who partnered with me specifically so they could offer live, interactive, engaging, in-person sessions as part of their career programming. I initially offered to host some webinars for free to these existing clients, mostly just to help them maintain some continuity of programming, but also to do a bit of a proof of concept for them and for me. I will admit the early days were anything but smooth sailing. Although I'd used Zoom plenty of times and consider myself reasonably tech savvy, I hadn't really used it for webinars. So even though it's second nature to me now, there was definitely a learning curve at the start. My tech and room setup also weren't fantastic. My temporary home office was filled with boxes and this old light chandelier thing hanging from the ceiling. And it all looked pretty dingy on camera. But I did what I could to just make it work. Physical stores weren't open at the time. I didn't have my UK driver's license either and no car. So I went onto eBay and ordered this huge white projector screen to put behind me as my backdrop. I will never forget doing a live TV interview for CGTN's Global Business America show about the pandemic's impact on people's careers, which was the very first TV interview I'd ever done in my life. And I just remember having the most makeshift setup in that room, just hoping nothing happened to my tech or my internet connection while trying to come across as this credible career expert on this global TV news broadcast. So my office setup and equipment are way better these days. And watching that interview now kind of makes me cringe, but it did the job. And now after giving hundreds of virtual talks since, my webinars have now become a pretty sizable chunk of my paid speaking services on top of my in-person workshops, which have now more than bounced back. Anyway, the point is that I've had my fair share of messy transitions, both big and small. I crossed paths with many people whose career transitions were more difficult, more drawn out, and definitely more painful than they originally envisioned. And whenever things aren't exactly going smoothly, it's super frustrating. But your job as someone striving to do more of the work you want to do is to not get too caught up in the imperfections along the way of your journey or to allow too much of your energy to get siphoned off trying to create some ideal set of circumstances to make the ride smoother for yourself. Stuff happens. Unexpected things come up. Your job is to try and find a way to piece things together and just make do with what you have because, well, that's really all you can do. 
I sometimes get really frustrated when things don't go my way or how I hoped they would go. I hate setbacks. I'll admit I'm an annoying perfectionist, especially when it comes to my work. And the problem with being a perfectionist is that I sometimes fixate on what's not working or what I could have done differently to avoid the stumbles. So one thing I continue to work on and that I hope you'll also work on if you struggle during these moments when the blueprint you have for your career isn't matching up with the reality you're experiencing is to try and let go a little bit, to accept the rocky ride, and to just hang on the best you can so you can eventually get where you want to go. This takes me to some quotes from one of my favorite movies of all time, Seabiscuit, which is all about doing your best with what you have and has been a huge inspiration to me over the years. You don't throw a whole life away just because it's banged up a little. Everybody loses a couple, and you either pack up and you go home, or you keep fighting. So my challenge to you is to identify one area in your career where your desire for the perfect, ideal set of circumstances is actually resulting in procrastination and getting in the way of you moving forward toward the next chapter in your career. Try and accept the imperfection of your situation. To not completely ignore it, but to recognize it is what it is, and to instead focus on one action you can take to work around it and still create some progress that's good enough for now. Next month, we're airing our very special 100th episode of this podcast, which is a major milestone, and I'm very excited to welcome Ann Tumlinson back as our special guest. Ann was the very first person I ever interviewed for this show, and her episode aired the very first week this show launched way back in September 2016. We're going to do a little catch up to find out how things have gone for her over the past seven years since she decided to branch off from working as a director at a health policy consulting firm to start her own independent consultancy and caregiver support community. I'm also going to be sharing my own reflections about the parallel journey I've been on myself as someone who also went from full-time employment in the corporate world to running my own business. Now, if you have a question about career change you want either of us to address, I'd love for you to leave me a voicemail with your thoughts at careerrelaunch.net slash voicemail. You can also find a summary of my discussion with Carla today and learn more about her on the episode page at careerrelaunch.net slash 99. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd also appreciate you leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to ensure you never miss an episode, be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community. And a very special thanks again to Carla Stickler for sharing her unique story with us today from Chicago. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Today's music was curated by Jonathan Rinaldi Pohl. And the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu, and I look forward to connecting with you again during our upcoming 100th episode of the show. See you then. Thank you.